Hello and welcome to another episode of Mike'd, a special audio-only episode of Mike today. <laughs> I am your host, uh, Shane Page, here at uh, St. Michael Catholic Church, the Director of Evangelization, and I am joined with a special guest today. We are joined by the daring deacon, Kevin Tran, who is joining us today. I pulled him from the side and asked him to be on our podcast today as a way to get to know him a little bit and ask him some questions. We have the privilege of, of hosting Deacon Tran this summer as one of our seminarians. So uh, Deacon Tran, welcome to Mike'd. Thank you, Shane. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, what um, can I ask the question of what brought you here? Or did you? I'm sure you did not come of your own accord. Oh, yes. No, we... Um, you know, we usually get uh, a call from Father Gober, our vocations director, around, oh, you know, it's anywhere between a week before we had to show up to maybe a month or so. But, um, you know, this time we were all just kind of, uh, all my classmates were gathered around and he called one of us and we said, well, you know, just just, just tell it to us. We're all here. So he, he went down the list and he said, Kevin Tran's going to St. Michael's Catholic Church in Gastonia. Did anybody so, go, ooh. Ooh, yeah, we all did. <laughs> Yeah. Now you, uh, before we we started recording, you told me you are actually from the Charlotte Diocese, and were you were were you born in uh, the Charlotte Diocese? Yes, I'm. I'm born right in Charlotte. So, where did where did you live? Where did you grow up? I grew up on the east side. So uh, first around the um, the Albemarle area, and then um, later on we moved into the Mint Hill area. So not too far. Um, Yeah, went to elementary school at uh, Queens Grant. Um, and I spent, you know, elementary into the K-8 school, so elementary, middle school, and then I went to high school in Independence. Interesting. So, was, so what was your uh, parish? St. John Neumann in, uh, on the east side. Did you discern your uh, vocation at, uh, at St. John? I did, yes. Uh, luckily, I had, a, I had a pastor, Father Pat Har, who was just, you know, just so instrumental in my vocation because, you know, he, he formed a, a group of high schoolers, um, just, just, you know, young boys, and... Um, um, he'd take us on these trips to, uh, you know, the zoo or, you know, different churches around the diocese. Um, and, and he even let a couple of us shadow him for the day to see what, you know, the, a day in the life of a priest, you know. So those kinds of things just really helped me to see, you know, I guess the extraordinariness of the, of the priestly life, but also mm-hmm. kind of the ordinariness also. Yeah, so did you develop, it sounds like you developed a good relationship with him. Yes. Uh, yeah. How old were you when you began really discerning a strong call to pursue the priesthood. Yeah, I think, well, I had, I think I had my first knock at around 16, um, you know, just at a retreat, um, one of the retreat leaders, it's a net focus or net missionary, if you know that, um, those are all college age students. And, um, you know, one of them was applying for the priesthood for, uh, or the seminary that fall. Um, but he just had this look in his eye and, you know, I just remember thinking to myself, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but whatever he's got, I want it. Mm. Um, and just, you know, for the next several years, just I went on these retreats um, and a lot of those retreats involved adoration. So I just had a lot of time with our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And then when I went off to college, I think that's when I seriously started discerning because, you know, my first year I spent at Wake Forest and, you know, I... I remember spending a lot of like nights just like laying in bed, just like staring at the ceiling, just, you know, here I am at my dream school. I've, um, you know, doing, doing all the things I wanted out of college, but you know, just something wasn't right. Something was, you what know, were you studying? Missing. I, I was studying, um, chemistry for, um, you know, getting ready for med school. at the So time, you're a so. chemist. Yes. Yes. 
Well, I mean, I, I failed again in chemistry, so probably not. But <laughs> you know, not not to interrupt. I'm good at interrupting. Oh, that's I'm sorry for all my listeners. I do it too much. But uh, you you will make a fine priest. And the reason I say that is that I was assigned to read. Uh, I cannot. I think it was the pastoral rule by Pope Gregory the Great. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And he says that good priests should be like chemists. Only in his uh, terms, I think it was like a like a pharmacist or apothecary. He says, so what you have to do is to be a good doctor of souls. And you have to know the scriptures. And like a good chemist and a good pharmacist, you've got to know what chemicals to put together, what verses to put together right. to, to, to give someone their remedy. And uh, he talked about the seriousness is that if you do it incorrectly... If you do the wrong thing, if you cite the wrong scriptures, you know, take this psalm and this then this gospel, whatever it might be, you can do damage. Oh yeah, yeah. you know. But I'm encouraged. So don't don't. The Lord is going to use your uh, your chemistry background to do great things for the priesthood. Yeah. Well, you know, and actually, just related to that is, um, I remember. Well, you know, and I just said I, I failed organic chemistry my sophomore year of college. So I remember I um, was I drove my dad around town and we were just kind of talking about you know the future of my vocation and I said well I don't think med school is going to be it because you know I've got this failed class and you know I don't think any med school is going to take a you know an F or something on the on the transcript and so he said well you know there there are there are two kinds of doctors you know there's the doctors of the body and then there's doctors of the soul mm. and the latter is way more important than the former. And I just, yeah, I mean, I had to take that to prayer for the for the next year. What a, what a good word, though. Yeah, yeah. Stanley Harawas was a uh, professor of mine. Oh, I love Harawas. Yeah, yeah, so you've read him uh, as well. Very influential on me. And I can remember one of my first classes with him, and and I went to a, a Protestant seminary at Duke Divinity mm-hmm. School, and uh, he says that doctors, physicians, have become the new priests of of our yeah, time. They're, yeah, they're, I remember that we, one. we consider them the priests of salvation because. We look to them to keep us alive, and then he used pretty much to paraphrase your father. He says, "But the, but the issue is, is that all of you are called to be doctors of souls. We know that a bad physician can kill the body." Right. He says, "I'm not sure we believe quite yet that a bad doctor, a bad priest, can kill the soul." Right. Um, and it was just a moment again of, of great sobriety for us. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's so true because I I, I know you know it. Growing up in the Bible Belt, you have all kinds of conversations with non-Catholics, and I know so many who's, um, you know, they have this kind of resentment for the Catholic Church, not even because of their own personal experience, but because they've they've had this generations-old, um, you know, story being passed around that, oh, my grandfather or great-grandfather was just told off by this priest in the confessional or something or other, and he left the faith, and now we, we carry this, you know, familial hatred for the Catholic Church, so... That's that's a real thing. It is a real thing. Uh, yeah. After my conversion, I spoke to other uh, Catholics who still to this day, can I use the word scars? They they, they have scars from a, uh, an experience in the confessional. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, are you learning the power of your words, the power of your person, based on just the, the clerics that you're we- uh, that you're wearing? I mean, have you has there come a point where you realize that this? This is to be taken very seriously. Oh, yeah, and I think that's part of why um, wearing clerical attire has kind of become a, um, a thing again in, in seminaries is because they want us to know the, the, the weight that not just our words but even our, the way we carry ourselves um, have um, to, towards the people um, and even to ourselves because I'll, I'll catch myself, you know, you know, 
keep myself from doing all kinds of things I normally would do in, in civilian clothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we, I, I, I do want to ask you about seminary, but not quite yet. Back up a little bit. So when your father said that, had you already been intuiting within yourself that I could be called to be a Catholic priest? And then, and then was, was, was your, did your father's words intersect that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think he said that because he knew, you know, it, it wasn't a kind of secret that I was thinking about the priesthood in high school. Okay. So my, my father knew that kind of stuff. But um, so I think that's why he said it to me, was just kind of get me to think about it more seriously in college. Were you active in your faith in college? I mean, was that something that was still very critical to you? Oh, yeah. I actually, and, you know, it's kind of funny. I um, And I don't say this to toot my own horn, but I I know most people, they'll, they'll form their schedules around, you know, the classes that they need to take. But um, I I kind of form my schedule around uh, about around the opportunity to go to daily mass at least, you know, once a week besides Sunday. Um, who, who were your influences in college? Uh, I had I had lots of good friends, um, good friends. Uh, I had a good campus minister. Um, you you all might know Father Innocent. Yes. Um, yes. So um, and then also my uncle uh, Father I Dominic. He was at Tran- UNCC. Yes, I eventually transferred over to UNCC. Um, okay. After okay. after sophomore year of college and yeah, so I finished up there and uh, yeah, I I was the president at, at the campus ministry my my um, last year of college, so just. Getting to go to the go to the Blessed Sacrament in between classes um, and just you know spending time in prayer between classes, I think that's that really helped me out there too. And then, when did you make the decision to to go into seminary? Probably June or July, entering senior year of college. Yeah. So I I I had already contacted Father Gober again, the, the vocations director, maybe. Freshman or sophomore year of college, and so then I just emailed him, you know, that summer of uh, entering senior year. And I said, "All right, I think I'm ready for the application." <laughs> uh, what was seminary like for you? Oh, seminary has been oh, it's been a it's been a ride for sure. But um, no, I the first year, my first year of seminary, um, I I spent a lot more time intentionally doing holy hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I always just catch myself, you know, just sighing. And I didn't really know what it was at the time where I didn't really think about it, but it wasn't until maybe theology and we talk about the Trinity and how the spirit is the, is the sigh of love between the father and the son. And that's when I kind of, it's, yeah, that's it. But, you know, and it's things like that, you know, you, you do things in your prayer life in seminary and then you learn about it in class and you just put two and two together and you just fall in love with, with our Lord even more just because of, you know, you're doing the things and you're learning about why you're doing the things. It was there a, a book or a, a class that was more transformative or maybe the most transformative for you in seminary? Yeah, I think it was um, It was this class on uh, the historical books and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Um, it was taught by this, he's, he's an old priest, old uh, Father, Father Shear, um, but he's, he's got this training. Of course, he's trained by um, Catholic uh, theologians and scholars, but also he, um, and I don't know how he got around to doing it, but he was studying with... Um, some rabbis in synagogue school and so that's he also got gets his degree from some of those um jewish professors but he just had this way of reading the scriptures that i just never encountered before and just you know just kind of seeing the humanity of some of these old testament figures just kind of reshaped the way i read the scriptures myself so yeah that yeah i i remember when i was in in, in seminary the 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 common 
conversations that we would have among other seminarians is like, well, you know, all this academic stuff, this is all book knowledge. This won't really matter once you're uh, in a in a parish. Uh, it's going to be completely different, and we we can put all this behind us. I never thought that way. Right. I always, when I was learning some of the things, these insights, and you know, when I would have those experiences that you did, like this is amazing. Yeah. You know, this is great. I always looked at it like this is treasure, and I'm going to share this treasure with the people that I'm serving. Right. Uh, it, it, do you see? Do you sense that among uh, your other brother seminarians that well, this is just all the the academics. This is not really going to uh, translate well into your your priesthood. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have some friends from uh, other seminaries, and they'll say that about their seminaries. But I, I'm blessed just to be, you know, the the seminary that we attend in Cincinnati for our theology studies. That you know, just to be surrounded by guys who really take their academics seriously, um, and a lot of those, a lot of our conversations at, at lunch and dinner are uh, are are these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I mean, I just I look at it as we're we're hungry for truth. We're wired for truth. The great saints uh, of the past, the scholastics. I mean, they were the ones who just were so able, so well able to articulate what the truth is, and that we we share that even as pastors. Right. It, we are feeding the minds of our people. This is stimulating. Them. They're having the same kinds of reactions that we have. Right. Yeah, when, exactly. we, when we read this stuff, why would we withhold this uh, this treasure from our, our people? Because I think ultimately we all want to learn, and we all want to learn what the Scriptures really say. Um, what surprised you about seminary? Was there anything that surprised you? Um yeah, I mean, I think I think the easiest one, of uh, the easiest surprise to mention is just how normal guys are uh, and, and can be, you know, because I think a lot of times when we think of seminary, especially around here in the Belmont Gastonia area, we might think of the Benedictines and how, you know, they kind of live this austere lifestyle. Um, and we might, it's kind of easy, at least for me, it was easy to kind of translate that to imagining what seminary is like. But yeah, I mean, we, we do have a somewhat monastic schedule with prayer, but I mean, we just, we play all kinds of games. We even have a bar in the seminary. We just kind of just hang out. And I mean, it's like living in a big fraternity house of 85 guys, you know, and it's just a bunch of guys being bros, you know, <laughs> and, but, but we're all there for the same purpose. You know, we're all there to, to love, to love our Lord and to, you know, grow in that love and to learn how to serve each other. So. Yeah, and you want those friendships to last right, uh, right. as well. Are, are the people in the seminary, your your brothers, are they all in the Charlotte Diocese? Uh, well, a good chunk of us are, um, but not not all of them, because um, because it is in Cincinnati. It is it's their um, dio- archdiocesan seminary, so most of the guys are from the archdiocese of Cincinnati and are studying for them. But we even have guys from the diocese of Toledo, Ohio. We've got guys from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, and Fort Worth. I think that's. Texas <laughs> and uh, Kansas City, St. Joseph's in uh, Missouri. So we've got guys from all over the country. Now, unlike uh, some of the seminarians that have been to St. Michael uh, over the summer, you were ordained deacon. Yes. Uh, this this summer. So help me understand. So when you have conversations with people, you have the priest and you have the deacon. Um, what are what are the similarities? But what are the differences as well? Yeah. Um, well, the sim- I think the similarities is that we're we're both serving at the altar, um, and but it's easy to point out the differences there, right? Um, 
in, in the way that we serve the altar because it's the priest who's actually offering the sacrifice of the mass, um, the bread and the wine, and the deacon, you know, as to follow scripture is the one assisting at table. And so we're, we're the ones setting up the altar and, and getting, and getting the gifts ready for father to, to consecrate into, um, into the Eucharist. Um, and that, that'll translate over to, to our ministries as well. You know, we're similarly between the priests and the deacons. We're both called to serve the people in a in a ministerial way, as opposed to um, you know uh, how I served as as you know a lay seminarian. Um, but the difference being that you know Father's going to go around. He's going to hear confessions. He's going to anoint the sick. But you know, I bring the Eucharist from from the table of the altar to to the sick, and you know. Um, and you know, I yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, are you, have you been administering the sacrament since you've been here uh, to some of the homebound or the shut-ins? Uh, not quite yet, but I I was going to get to that. Yeah. Now, are you? Help me understand that. Is it transitional, deacon? Yes. Okay. Is it, but is a is a ordination of a transitional deacon the same as a, the ordination of a permanent deacon? Yes, it's it's all pretty much the same except for one major part. Um, and it's uh, when the when the archbishop or the bishop is going to is um, receiving the the vows of the men, and uh, the permanent deacons will get all the same vows except for one. Um, the transitional deacons will hear for those who are entering the uh, the celibate state. You know, do you promise to uphold this? Um, what is it? Uphold the state of life for the. Um, for the good of the Christian people, or something like that. Okay. So that's the one. That's the one major difference. What was it like to be ordained? I mean, what was going through your mind on the the moment of your ordination? Oh man. Well, um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I, I. That's just one of those moments. I was just so into it that I. I feel like I just didn't really process anything at all in the moment. Um, but it was just. But then you know, mass is over, and I'm looking down, and I'm wearing the the vestments of a deacon. And it's like, oh, that happened. That uh, wow. Because <laughs> you could have you could have fooled me. You could have told me that was all just a dream, and I would have believed you. <laughs> well, just uh, that would have been a profound moment uh, for sure. And now you are a deacon, and you will be ordained a priest in about uh, how long? Yeah, less than a year. Yeah, June uh, June fifteenth, God willing. Now, as you're in seminary, you have a final year of seminary. Now that you're an ordained deacon, what will you do as a deacon in seminary? Yeah, um, well, I'm going to have a lot more fun here than I am going to in seminary. <laughs> just <laughs> just because you know, a lot of our ministerial stuff, um, they're going to be we're not going to really have so much time for those since we're we are going back to school for the last year. Um, but as a deacon, I, I do get to preach. Um, so I'll be preaching at one of the local parishes in Cincinnati, um, as well as um, in the seminary to my brothers. Um, and that's probably going to be my, my biggest function as a deacon. Was the homily you preached here at St. Michael your first homily? That was my second Sunday homily, yeah. Okay. What was that like? Um, well, it was, uh, I think, preparing for it. Um, Cause just we just uh, father and I had uh, quite the busy week. You and father were out and away in Phoenix, and um, you know I was helping Deacon uh, Melton and Deacon Mueller uh, hold down the fort here. Um, so and but I was just so appreciative because that kind of taught me realistically what is going to be like writing homilies 
in a parish because okay yeah i'm not gonna be able to just sit down for like you know four hours at a time in one single day to just crank this thing out right it, it becomes piecemeal um and part of the piecemeal is the, the the different stages on preparing a homily so you know maybe monday and tuesday i spend praying over the scriptures and seeing what the readings are mm. um and then you know wednesday thursday maybe just jotting some notes jotting some themes i want to get across and then friday saturday actually writing the thing and rehearsing it so well i thought you we're, we're, i want to talk about your your homily uh here in a couple of minutes but uh what i appreciated about it because i can remember the first time i preached Mm-hmm. And I think I tried to include everything I knew, <laughs> you know, in the one homily. And it was just, oh, I look back now, I go, oh, those poor people who had to endure that. I think, it, didn't Pope Francis say something about that? Like there are two people, there are two forms of suffering for every homily. There's the uh, the suffering of the pastor who has to prepare it, and there's the suffering of the people, <laughs> the suffering of the people who have to hear it. <laughs> Sorry, good people of God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... In I I value good preaching, and um, I mean, how are you learning in seminary with your interactions with Father Rossi? And you know, I think everybody here at St. Michael's thinks Father is a very gifted uh, preacher, and we expect that. Yeah, Just how critical, Lord. how critical the Sunday homily is. Mm-hmm. Have you begun to really process that? Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly think so. Um, well, and it's it's really because of you know some of the homilies that I you know the first homilies I you know I heard in seminary, um, they were just kind of unlike the homilies I heard um, you know before before seminary. Just because you know the the, the homilies you'd hear before seminary, um, and just out in your local parish, they're going to be more catered to the experiences of the people, um, and so they sound very normal. Right. Whereas the, the homilies in seminary are going to sound a little bit more academic, probably closer to the style of like maybe Bishop uh, Robert Barron's homilies on the Word of Fire. Very show. intellectual. Very intellectual. And so, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate those um, just because that's kind of where I am in life is just kind of this, this academic, constantly thinking th- on th- academic theological terms. But then you get to your last couple of years of seminary and you're just itching to get into the parish, you know, and so... You know, I guess I guess for me, I still appreciate the academic homilies, but I'm moving more towards okay. But how can I relay this this high theological thinking and distill it for you know the everyday experience? Because not every one of us is going to have those same experiences in the same kind of academic terms. So, I remember there was a, a preaching professor of mine, and uh, he talked about how as as a pastor, you really begin over the of course of time to love your people. And you love them greatly and you begin to know their stories and that your best sermons will actually come from your people because you're going to be, you know, in the soil, in the fabric right. of their lives. And you're going to be discerning what the Lord is doing. But he also said that because you love your people so much and what each one of them is going through, you will see them on Sunday morning. Like I'm just making some someone's name up. Um, there's Miss Betty and you visit with her this, this week and you know what just happened to her whether it was a, a diagnosis or a loss in the family. And then the text for that morning is going to be one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Right. And she's already had a, a, a difficult time. But I remember my preaching professor said, it is not the job of the pastor to protect his people from Jesus. Right. And I remember that word went straight to my heart when, when I heard it, that despite everything that's going on, and yes, you love your people, 
you are still going to love them even more when you unleash the word on them, even if it's a hard saying. Right. And his point was, the people of God can handle Jesus. Yeah. But you've got to be willing to unleash him right. on the people. I just love that wisdom. Yeah, and I had that I had that very experience um, this past weekend because, you know, here I am, I'm writing this homily and, you know, I, I don't know many of you very well just yet. But so I just I just kind of just wrote this thing because okay, you know, um, or just really off the top of my theological head. Um, but then I, I started preaching it at the masses and I'd see all your faces and I just remember Sunday, I think it was at the nine the nine o'clock mass, I saw someone's face out there and I realized why the Holy Spirit led me to write this homily. Because I saw that person, I said, Oh, this homily is for that person, mm. that family. Yeah, so Yeah, and you spoke about uh faith. Um, and that that in quoting the scriptures, faith is the the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, I remember I w- I'm leading a class during the summer here at, at St. Michael after the the nine o'clock mass, and we're discussing the homily, mm-hmm. and our conversation shifted to the struggles of faith. Right. And there are moments when it seems easier to believe than others, and a few of us shared uh, about those periods of time where I am racked with doubt. I am. I feel as if the floor has opened up. You know what I thought was a solid foundation. I'm looking down, like oh, you know, it's kind of like what I don't know anymore. Right. What do you? I mean, what would you say to a parishioner out there um, who is struggling to believe, um, to really exercise the fullness of their faith? Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, the struggle of belief can be said in a couple of ways. Um, You know, I think classically a lot of us will think about the struggle of faith in general um, and belief in God. But, you know, the second way is just um, struggle in kind of seeing where our Lord is leading someone. And I think, you know, yeah, the struggle, I mean, the struggle can apply both ways. Um, And so, you know, to either one of those, I think I'd say that um, just... That's why we have all of these, you know, go, going back to the letter of Hebrews, you know, the the author of, I, I, I'm going to say St. Paul, mm-hmm. um, says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And so these, these witnesses, they're called that because of, you know, the fact that they, they struggle with the exact same struggles that we struggled with before. They just, they, they figured their way through and they left us an example to follow. And so that's why, you know, just going back to sacred scripture, going back to the lives of the saints is just so important. And just kind of catching those those details, even the, especially the not so romanticized ones, you know, and I, I think of someone like, like Abraham, you know, he's he's called to leave his father and his, his brothers and his homeland to go to some place he's, he doesn't know about, right? And so just to just meditating on that reality rather than just kind of like going along with the, the author, like God bless him. He's, but he's, he's got so many um, details he's trying to catch. But, you know, for us as readers, we just need to pause on some of those, those really fine details and say, all right, what, what were some of those feelings that, that Abraham would have felt? What are some of those feelings that Moses would have felt? You know, he's, he's got this stutter, but God's calling him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Why? Right. And so, you know, just kind of catching those and realizing that God gives us these struggles. God gave those men, those women, those struggles precisely because he was calling them to great things, right? And and the struggle is part of that journey. And so for us also, you know, we go, we go through these struggles because we're called to great things also. I don't think there's a saint, canonized saint, that has not had 
in my recollection, uh, a struggle against the temptations of faith. Right. I think it was, uh, I cannot remember his name, the great Thomist of the 20th century. Um, Oh, Gary Gou Lagrange. Yeah, I think that he just talked about the temptations against faith as being a part of the normal Christian life. They will all struggle with it. I know that the saints who have influenced me the most. Now, we're in the Little Flower Room, and it seems like every podcast. You don't know this. I'm always finding a way to mention uh, the Little Flower. I know that there was a point in her life when she was struggling with uh, the final stages of her tuberculosis. She was in great pain, and um, she felt nothing but darkness. And she actually, in her own blood, wrote the creed, the Nicene Creed in her blood, Mm. and penned it to her heart. And said, "I believe. I believe, despite everything. Right. I still, you know, that 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 temptation, not to believe, but she persisted. But what all the saints, I think, understood is that faith is a gift from God first. Yes, it's not something that we can just manufacture. And that reminds me of a, a very brief in, in, uh, interaction I had with a gentleman at uh, a church that I had served in Charlotte, and his son was murdered, mm. and he was away for about two or three weeks." His son was murdered out of state. It was a horrible incident. And this was a very prominent member of the church, someone who had a very robust relationship with the Lord. And this tragedy happened to him. And I can remember seeing him on a Sunday morning. He was just clamoring up the stairs, and he had a stoop in his posture. And I just said, how are you doing? Right. And he said, brother, I... I don't know what to believe, but if I can believe anymore. And I remember it was as if the Holy Spirit gave me the words. And I said, it is not free up to you to believe. And I said, you remember the story of the man who was paralyzed and his four friends brought him up to Jesus and laid him at the feet. And Jesus says he saw their faith, yeah. the faith of his friends and forgave him. I said, why don't you just rely on the faith of the church right now right. and let us carry you to the Lord? Um, so I, I don't think we... Ultimately, faith is a gift, but is the church that gives us faith. And in moments of crisis, we can rely on the faith of the church. And there's nothing more encouraging for me in my struggles, when I have had struggles of faith, to, to be in the church and to see everybody standing, reciting the creed, right. receiving the, uh, the, the the Eucharist. I need that right. during those moments. Yeah, yeah. And to go back to the cloud of witnesses, like I know like you know, witness kind of carries this connotation that they just kind of stand by and watch and do nothing, right? But in reality they're they're it's like a stadium. It's like they're they're cheering us on and not just that it's not just that they're cheering us on, but you know, we call it the great deposit of grace because their their great holiness, their great lives don't just serve as examples for us, but they won merits and graces from our lord that can be given to us also and of course the the chief of all saints is going to be our blessed mother mary Mm. you know and she she not only is giving christ grace you know the her merits but she's also giving them directly to us just like just like she gives us her son right so i i'm a big proponent that mary mary gives us grace alongside her son well, you know, there was a member in our study group who mentioned the Virgin Mary as the the, the model of someone who was whose whose faith was tested. Right. Uh, you know, Angel Gabriel visits her and says, "You, you people, will, he will be called great, the Son of the Most High," and yet on Good Friday she's seeing his annihilation. Right. And the struggle of faith that she would have endured because she was a human person. I mean, her son was a divine person. Right. She's a human person. She had the gift of faith the way you and I do. And yet it was tested to the extreme. And yet 
she still believed. Right. Despite everything, she still believed. And and she still silently consented to to her son being put up there on the cross. Yes, she no consented. protest. She consented. Yeah, so we have these models, these great models of the faith who have been there. And they I, I like your image of the stadium, right? They they're still encouraging us. Or like uh you ever seen the um the, the the marathons where people are holding out the water, you know, yeah. for the runners thinking that ah, maybe the Saints are kinda like that for us. You know, we're getting tired, yeah. but they give us some refreshment along the way. Oh man, yeah. And I mean I that 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 analogy just brings me back to I, I went to World Youth Day in Poland in twenty sixteen. And, you know, part of the World Youth Day experience is that the final mass is going to be some kind of like remote location that you really can't get to by public transit. And so here we are, we from for my hotel, my group had to walk or march maybe five miles so it was it wasn't really a cakewalk it was like oh well actually maybe maybe longer because it was like a three four hour walk so maybe like 15 miles or something but um but i just remember we just i was i was beat it was hot i was tired but we just walked through this neighborhood and it's just you know we're on either side it's just a bunch of gated gated houses and all these people, once they heard that we were coming, they just lined up right in front, of, right behind their gates. And you know, some folks had apples, like a whole basket full of freshly picked apples. Some folks had their like hoses, just like running for us to fill up our waters. And it's just, it's just like that. You yeah. know, they're they're watching us get ready for Holy Mass with the Holy Father, and they want to support us in every way that they can to get there. Oh, so, that's 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 great. Uh, well, what or what are you most looking forward to? As a priest, yeah, I think I think hearing confessions. You know, in, in our homiletics class, Father made it a point that, and here's another difference between priests and deacons. I would say is that um, you know deacons, when when we're preparing for our homilies, it's based on our encounters with people and you know our kind of conversations with them. But when priests craft homilies, and this is this is Father's point, is that they're crafting it from their experience in the confessional. Right, because people are just pouring their hearts out to to priests in the confessional um, and the things that they're struggling with in in the in the battles against darkness, and so that's what the priest is going to be bringing along with him in his homilies and, and in the mass. So uh, yeah, I think hearing confessions is the thing I'm looking forward to. Is there anything that uh, makes you fearful? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I think um, the prospect of uh, leading people. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've been. Um, you know, kind of leading in in uh, in small ways, like you know, in marching band, I was like a section leader or um, campus ministry. I was the president, right? But just the prospect of, I, I guess, well, I guess in a word, just fatherhood. I think is the part that scares me. <laughs> sure, but that's also something that will invigorate you as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And but of course, in the in the scriptures, no one really led by themselves. Not even Jesus led alone. So right. where, whatever parish you serve, there will be those called around you uh, to help you lead. Right. And thanks be to God for them. I'm praying for them so hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Deacon Tran, it's been a delight. Thank you, thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me. And uh, we're we're glad that you are here. When? How long will you be with us? When would be your? Uh, when do you be, need to be back in seminary? My last Sunday here at St. Michael's will be August sixth. August 6th. Okay, it'll be here before we know. That's right. Uh, Well, thank you. uh, Thank you, Deacon, for your gifts and for your witness to us. Thank you, Shane, and God bless you all. Well, thank you all for listening. And uh, if you want more information about uh, what's going on in our parish, please visit our website at stmccg.org. On behalf of Deacon Tran and Father Rossi, uh, thank you so much for listening. And remember, everybody, always stay on the bark of Peter. God bless.